the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're looking at Ridley Scott's epic historical drama, Gladiator. Now, just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot of the film. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Gladiator, go away, watch it now, and then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. I blame YouTubers for everything these days. Millions of hours of young, attractive people uploading their thoughts to sell video games, beauty products, and a whole lifestyle. It's okay, I'm nearly 40 now, and not supposed to get it. Just like I didn't want my parents to get baggy indie music. The YouTuber's worst crime, as far as I can see though, is the overuse, and therefore devaluation, of the descriptive word, epic. This is not epic. So we took a trip to the Primark in Milton Keynes, which is an awesome Primark. Gladiator, however, could well be the dictionary definition of epic. The budget, the cast, the sets, the forests that they set on fire, they actually set them on fire. The third of the size Colosseum that they built, the amount of extras and therefore the amount of extras costumes, everything about this movie is huge, grand, epic, you might say. Are you not entertained? The genial Ridley Scott gives us Russell Crowe as Maximus Decimus Meridius and a tale of revenge told through battles, brutal gladiatorial scenes and political infighting. And for a film with such a huge budget, someone at the studio apparently forgot to worry too much about the script before signing the checks, as the characteristically vocal Russell Crowe was not backwards in coming forwards about the lack of script, and at points during filming he was ad-libbing some of the most famous lines in the film. At my signal, unleash hell. Overall, this film was received favourably by critics, and the audience went nuts for it, with a colossal return, and the awards followed, Five Academy Awards, Best Picture, Visual Effects and Sound Mixing, Crow got Best Actor in the leading role, and, as we will definitely discuss, Best Costume Design. Your fame is well-deserved, Spaniard. I don't think there's ever been a gladiator to match you. As ever, there were detractors. Roger Ebert wasn't keen, describing Gladiator as muddy, fuzzy and indistinct. It vexes me. I'm terribly vexed. And Camille Paglia stated that the film was boring, badly shot and suffused with sentimental PC rubbish. PC? Really? They tell me your son squealed like a girl when they nailed him to the cross. And your wife moaned like a whore when they ravaged her. Scale is mentioned in every account of Gladiator, and we will be no exception. But can you throw huge amounts of money and people at a film and expect a great result? Could a script ever be good enough to overshadow the spectacle of such a project? So after 16 years, is Gladiator seen now as an epic or an epic fail. Later in the show, we'll be taking a look at some of the movie world's best ad-libs and happy accidents, and some unexpected cameos by UK TV stars. But first, joining me in the arena to discuss Gladiator is the glad Ioli waving Andy Goulding, <laughs> and the glad all over oh. Rachel Burnett. <laughs> Hello. There we go. Hello. Hey, you see what I did there? You see, I was, uh, there were many puns I was going to try and work out on that, but I, I landed on those and I'm really quite happy with them. Um, okay, right. So, um, Andy, at my signal, unleash hell. <laughs> yes, good enough. <laughs> Can I go? Yeah, yeah. That'll do. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems like a backhanded compliment for something on such a massive scale, but... Uh, I think the the real star of it is the scale and the, the settings and the pacing and stuff rather than the acting and the script so much. But I was never bored. It it, it all sounds so backhanded. I do like this one. <laughs> yeah. so, I think it, it's successful in, in feeling epic without also feeling taxingly long. It, feel, it moved quite quickly for me. And I think... I'm in two minds because it, it feels it already feels like a classic, but I, part of me thinks that bec- is because it it also sort of feels like a relic. 
it's uh, it seems very old fashioned. I think it kind of closed the book on on this kind of big sort of swords and sandals epic as a sort of respected film genre. I mean, they had a pop at a few other ones after this, but all, they all kind of were overshadowed by it. But no, I, I, I saw it for the first time a couple of years after it came out, I think, and this was only my second viewing ever, so it's been a long time since I saw it. I remembered liking it before, and I still like it. So were you intrigued? Because were you, like, like me, I can't, re- I can't remember how we, we came up with... with, with- bringing this one to the fore and it might be the fact that Rachel worked on it we're getting there we're getting there Rachel hold back it's okay it's fine um, but Andy like me were you intrigued as to think well actually was this any good because I, everyone around the table must have heard John Coleshaw on Radio 4 doing his Maximus you know <laughs> yeah. Maximus Decimus Realist, uh, impression and then taking it a step further and, and, and in some way I had this comedy sort of uh, <laughs> thing in my head about it and thinking oh actually w- was this any good and I I, I and until recently, I couldn't answer that question, or, or I might have said, "Oh no, actually, I think it was a bit overblown, or whatever." Like that, that might have been my response. But were you thinking that, Andy? Were you thinking, well, you know, there's been a long time since you've seen it before, and now you've seen it again because this isn't on ITV three every other week, is it? No. I mean, you know, so were you intrigued as to what as to what you thought about it over a period of time? I was very intrigued, yeah, because the first time I saw it, it was sort of uh, not the sort of film that I'd normally go looking for, and I wasn't expecting to enjoy it that much, and really really liked it so when I came back to it I thought will 10 years have made any difference but I think I had pretty much the same reaction I did 10 years ago to it so I think it's it's a solid film and the fact that it can be kind of uh, parodied in that way so it's almost a compliment to it because yeah. it's it's that embedded in the culture now isn't yeah. it that, that everyone knows what he's doing when he does that that parody mm-hmm. so yeah uh, yeah I think it's good. I've said, I've said it before, but yeah, brilliant, I'm, I'm brilliant. sticking with that. Brilliant. I like it. I like it. I like it. See, some 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 review shows have got, they don't like the word good, and I think because it's not overly used, I think it's perfect. Well, well done. So, Rachel, were you not entertained? <laughs> I've been working on that one. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, right, okay, so well, let, let's declare the interest, shall we, Rachel, in uh, in the film Gladiator I, with uh, with Rachel Burnett. Go for it. Yes, if you look carefully at Russell Crowe's head in the scene with the tigers, my wig, a wig that I made myself, is on his head at some <gasps> points because <laughs> it had to be reshot and um, he refused to cut his hair because he was doing another film at the time. So they came to my wig studio that I was working at at the time, said, can you make a replica of this guy's hair? And we went, yes. <gasps> so there it is, on screen immortalised. No, the thing is, I've heard you say that a couple of times before, but still now, I'm still, it's still, it's still <laughs> yeah, amazing. It it's still, it's I just think it's fantastic. It's if I'm willing thing. to stand down and just let you talk to Rachel for the rest of the show about this, we'll like, we'll, yeah, we'll see you know what I think, it's good. So. <laughs> Pop and get the drinks in, Andy, we'll be all right. Um, so... With the Oscar going for best costume design, am I right in thinking you've got one on your shelf? It doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, it, didn't, it didn't go for makeup and hair. So mm. It went for costume. There is a debate because a, a friend of mine is determined that I'm an Oscar winner because mm-hmm. I worked on Topsy Turvy, the Mike Lee film about um, Gilbert and Sullivan. All right. And um, Christine Blundell, I think, she did the um, makeup and hair and she won the Oscar. So in his head, he's like, well, you had something to do with hair. <laughs> It's all a technicality now. If I if I were you, I'd be introducing myself as Rachel Burnett Oscar. <laughs> I know, you know, letters after my name, etc. You know, and just let's fight the technicalities out well, in court. We did win a basket of muffins, <laughs> <laughs> which for me is just so much better than a, a bit of metal. How wonderful! How wonderful. So, well, so what I'm interested in now is, can you? I don't know. I wouldn't be able to. Could you? Can you? Can you watch this film and, and not be? Oh, totally. Bedazzled by the fact that you were involved in it. Yeah, completely. Really, it's, honestly. <laughs> It's really weird. My wigs have been in films since, and it's such a shame, my very first wig appears in The Avengers. Not The Avengers Assemble, sadly, but The Avengers Uma Thurman Avengers. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, <laughs> if you oh. remember. On who? Who's on, on Uma Thurman. Oh, yeah, she's, good, so. she's a good wig wearer, isn't she? Thanks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and I was only, how old was I? 19, 20 when I started wig making. A couple of years back then, yeah? Oh, yeah, not that long ago. And I don't know, I almost detached myself from it, because when it's on a wig block in front of you and you're knotting it, for eight hours a day one hair at a time mm-hmm. it's one thing and then it goes off to be dressed properly and it goes on the person and when you see it on the screen you're you're a bit detached from it you're like did, did I do that I mean you know you did but you know like, it looks so different from the thing that you sort of worked on for eight hours a day for two weeks so in the credits right does it go for the company name or are you in there 
No, Jen, I've never ever had a film credit in You're my life. Me. And What's in fact, the... wig makers hardly do. This is a big bugbear. Andy knows about this. <laughs> um, wig makers hardly ever get credit. The caterer will get credit before the yeah. wig maker will. And yet, if those wigs aren't very good, you'd notice that. And if the actors' tummies weren't filled, you wouldn't know about that. So, <laughs> why do wig makers not well, get credit? They just buy their own. They can afford it, can't Absolutely. they? This is, right, okay, there's a new. Uh, <laughs> st start a Facebook group. This is, this is Up where we. With we're, wig makers. Yeah. No, no, but you would think that'd be exactly no, absolutely. right. There, there's the occasional one. Um, Peter Owen, who was the amazing wig designer that I worked for and trained under for the first two years, um, absolutely colossally amazing guy. He actually trained himself using um, his corset maker and he trained himself using wedding veils and fashioning a hook and he taught himself how to do it. It's absolutely incredible. So um, he was one of the very first people to be credited at the start of a film, which hardly ever happens because he was so well liked by Tim Burton for Sleepy Hollow. Mm -hmm. And the wigs were very appreciated in that film and very much used. I mean, Christina Ricci's wearing a wig through that and it's beautiful. So it's nice that somebody appreciates it. And Woody Allen appreciates it now as well, So which is really good because he didn't. He used to hate wigs and then um, our company changed his mind and he uses them all the time now. Okay, so fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's my hero, Woody Allen. Yay! <laughs> okay, well, so back to the film. Back to the film then. So you can bypass it. I wouldn't be able to. Well done. <laughs> my, my, my tiny ego would get in the way. But, um, so, so you, you really, did you enjoy this? Yeah. No, I really did. It's strange. I had the same thing as you. I thought, okay, I watched it when it first came out because mm -hmm. did the wig. So of course I wanted to see it. I couldn't really remember how I felt about it. I remember liking it and thinking it was good and I thought yeah but mm, 16 years on 15 years on mm -hmm. is it really that good and maybe it's aged a bit maybe the CG's not looking so good and yeah. there are a few dodgy bits but there still are in some films now there's some dodgy yeah. CG oh, yeah. oh my god so that's okay I can forgive it that it holds its own very very well actually and I thought it was quite timeless I think there is a classic feel about it an epic feel about it and it does feel a bit like a relic but not in a bad way yeah. you know it does have that old fashioned classic kind of Oh yeah, I know where I am with this. This is really good. They've got the hero and the and the villain and and the woman and the child and it's all there. Yeah. You know, it's just it's. I really really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I'm glad you pick up. I think you you talked about. I think we were skirting around the fact that we, earlier on you were saying, oh, with the acting, it doesn't matter about the acting. Now, I, yeah, I mean, some of the acting, but I'm, what I'm going to bring home here is Ollie Reed. Oh mm -hmm. boy, could he act! Yeah, and did yeah. he acted everyone off the screen on this? Yeah. But no one came close. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just—I thought it was just incredibly bowled me over. Really bowled me over. I'd forgotten, you know, just just how good he was. I mean, mm -hmm. that—that's come on, pick that out. That's proper acting, <laughs> isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. And that's—I think he's—he's he's the one—the one really good performance in the film. Uh, I think Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, best actor. Uh, yeah, I mean he. He, I think he won it just for presence. It's, I think it's the, the same sort of thing as as John Wayne. I never thought John Wayne could act really, but he he had a presence that kind of held the screen. And Russell Crowe has this kind of. Uh, well, I think really he won it just for sort of squinting his eyes a bit and talking <laughs> like that. Uh, but then the, on the other side of it, there's there's Wackame Phoenix. I think he's a fantastic actor. Mm -hmm. And his performance in this is nuts. Uh, but nuts. but I think it's a better film for him having made that decision. If he if it was his decision, mm. I don't know if he was directed to uh, to really like chew the scenery like he does. But well, I thought he was, I thought he was perfectly despicable. He yes. was, yeah, mm. yeah, hammy. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think that, that made okay. it all the more entertaining. Mm. And it was it almost fitting in that sort of grand setting to have that kind of performance. I mean, mm. he was so. It's not an, an, a completely unnuanced performance. It's uh, you just go over the top and he takes everything to an extreme, but you can see all that kind of simmering sort of self hatred in there and everything, can't you? I mean, he's he's such a weaselly, pathetic character, and he's. I mean, even his even his name. Uh, Commodus, it's mm. it's it's a bit sort of embarrassing. It sounds like a Roman toilet, doesn't it? <laughs> or, although I, I also think that Maximus Decimus Meridius sounds like a skipping rhyme. So there's, <laughs> there's two sides to that, isn't there? But now all I want to do is get a skipping rope, right? <laughs> so talk about we, we we touched on it on the intro, and I think it, it's always going to be there for this film. I think is 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 the script and the lack of it, and the yeah, the amount of of ad-libbing. And um, I mean, something I picked up here off the uh, IMDb was that uh, Crowe said to the co-writer of Gladiator, William Nicholson, he says, your lines are garbage, but I'm the greatest actor in the world and I can make even garbage sound good. Oh, come on, really? I, I keep saying this about <laughs> Russell Crowe, really. We're talking about that. He won, the, he won the Oscar for Best Actor and he beat Tom Hanks in Castaway. I know, that's the one that's really... I, yeah. I looked because I thought, oh, he won Best Actor. Who did he beat, thinking yeah. it was a weak year? 
And then I saw it was Tom Hanks. I was like, are you actually kidding me with they, this? Well, they must have been sick of giving it to Tom Hanks or something by that matter, time. But it shouldn't matter, should it? It no. should go to the best performance regardless. And it's like, that's so much better than what the heck Russell Crowe is doing. But I have a bit of a grudge against him anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> trying to elaborate on no. that. <laughs> no. But he, he just seems such a unpleasant person. Mm. I'm going to get pulled up on this. But he just... That arrogance to say that he wasn't mm-hmm. actually that famous yet, yeah. and for him to say I'm the greatest actor, did he really say well, that? Well, even if he was, you, that's, oh, you that's not the way he behaves. No, Oliver Reed is one of the greatest actors. Yeah. He's just around the corner from you, so just be careful what you yeah. say. Yeah, look and learn, look and yeah. learn, because he he says that he gives that line here. I've written it. We mortals are but shadows and dust. Mm. Shadows and dust, Maximus. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. Oh. I mean, his opening lines are about um, somebody selling him some queer giraffes. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he just delivers it in such a brilliant way. I was like, oh, yeah, we're on solid ground now. I've got Oliver on. It was just so great. Such a shame that he, he died during filming. Because those scenes, they, they did some kind of uh, computer mm. work to to fit, finish his role for him, essentially. Yeah. Didn't mm. it? I, yeah. I bet that is what cost him an Oscar nomination, really. Mm, I possibly. bet there was, I mean, whenever there's computers involved, it's like, mm-hmm. and any performance by Andy Serkis, uh, mm. when he played Gollum, there was a big uh, debate over whether he should be nominated for that one. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's it's only, you wouldn't even notice with Oliver Reed, would you, that they'd, they'd done anything to finish the no. the role. But I don't know if that's why he wasn't nominated, because mm. I, I certainly would have given him a supporting actor nod for this yeah, one. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. Although Joaquin was nominated, wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't. They can give two, can they? they oh, film? yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some years it's been like when we talked about Cabaret before, when mm. Joel Grey won Best Supporting Actor. Awesome. Uh, three of the others were from The Godfather. So they could have. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Could have been. Mm. That. I watched this. Uh, I watched Gladiator in three sittings. And it's funny sometimes, isn't it? What you bring to a film yourself. Mm. You have, sometimes you have to put. You have to make a bit of effort sometimes, and if you're not really in the mood, yeah. um, and I think the f- when I first started watching it, and I do, I do this a lot. I mean, you know, you know, I've got young kids, so it's very rare you can sit down and actually get anything done. Um, so I, I started watching it, and I, I wasn't really into it. I, thought, well, I don't know. It's a bit after the the first sort of action scene. It was quite a long time then between anything really happening. But I think I watched the extended edition. Don't know if there was there was something in there. And then I stopped watching it. And then I came back to it again. And the next day, and I thought, what was I thinking? This is fantastic. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> um, but I, I do have an issue. I do have an issue. This is a revenge movie, but you know, if you want to really knock it down, it's a revenge movie. How many people did Maximus kill as a general in the Roman <laughs> army. Yeah. And he's going back seeking revenge over, you know, obviously he's upset about his wife and son mm. uh, being being killed, but hang on. <laughs> yeah, when I, I did just sit down to watch it with my with my wife, I hadn't seen it for years either, and she couldn't really remember much about it. And it came on and he was the general and she went, hang on a minute, he's the baddie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the scale. Did you enjoy the scale of this, Rachel? I did. I actually thought it was actually a bit smaller than I remembered it being. That's why it sounds a bit strange. But um, you basically, you are, you're in Germania, you're in that wood. Mm-hmm. That's quite enclosed, it's not massive. It's only as big as the War and Peace things that we saw the BBC doing. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't any bigger than that. And then we went to some place that looked very deserty. And um, <laughs> I don't know where that was. And um, that looked no bigger than anything in The Mummy. And then we went into Rome, and that's when it started to get a little bit bigger with the Colosseum. But apparently they made it look bigger than it actually was because it didn't look epic enough. And we didn't really go outside of that. We were then in the palace quite a lot, in the gladiator's um, basement, cellar, whatever the hell it is. Um, We didn't really go big. We didn't go landscape-y very Mm. much. There was a few strange adverty shots um, throughout. I don't know if you noticed those, but where they showed sunsets and things like that, just to give you a sense. I thought you meant there was some product placement. No, no. No, because Ridley used to be an advert director. (laughs) I think sometimes you can tell he used to be an advert director. So you get these little strange shots where you go, oh, that's a bit strange. But okay, I'll go with it. And um, Well, now, how much do we trust? Sorry to interrupt, Rachel. How much do we trust IMDB and those those trivia things? Because you know I'm a big fan Mm. of these now. Since we've been doing this show, (laughs) I I like to go through the trivia I love that word trivia. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone there said, suggested that actually back 
in in the Colosseum, in, in, in let's say, real life, right? Uh, they used to do sort of adverts and sales of things. And the, the producers of this film were wanting to put that in, but they didn't think the audience would understand it and they would think it would be a bit naff. Uh, so they didn't do it. But I'm thinking, I, I, I don't know. I, I struggle to get that in my brain. This but. is true because it was on the uh, the documentary on the DVD that I watched. Was it? actually yeah. talking about that, yeah. The, some of those little details that they... Uh, that they wanted to put on, put in for authenticity, but they thought would just they would clash too much with people's expectations, and it would make it almost seem inauthentic. Mm. Oh, isn't that funny? No, I didn't mm. know that. But how much do we trust that trivia? Because I believe everything I read. Oh God, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> I pick the ones I want to believe. Really. Uh, what about the violence, Andy? What about the violence? I think. I think in my mind, I, I, I don't know, I perhaps thought it was a bit more brutal at times, but I think some of the uh, the, the scenes with, with, with the tigers and the gladiatorial fighting, I thought were, were really, really excellently done. And re- but I don't know, now we've got Game of Thrones and, and, and things like this, it does seem it's, it's much more harrowing, I, I, I suppose, these days. I hate that word, uh, or the phrase. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, what do you think? Were you shocked by the violence at all? Um, not especially. I'm quite desensitised, but uh, my wife doesn't really like violence. I watched it with her, so I was, I'm more aware when I'm watching with uh, with her. Yeah. And so occasionally, like, if someone got stabbed in the leg or something, she'd go, ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whereas I, I just, I, I see it and don't really think much of it, but... I, I felt a bit strange about the the action sequences actually because I, I sometimes I felt we were too closed in on the action. I wanted to pull back a little bit to see more of it. I felt like like some of it was shot a bit too tight in, and I wanted to see it on on a grander scale. Not obviously like a member of uh, of the audience because it'd be too far away, but it all it all got a bit sort of grainy and, and closed in. I think that's what what Roger Ebert was was talking about when he said about what did he say muddy and mm. yeah. I mean, I, th- I don't remember having this problem before, so maybe that's one of the elements that seemed to have aged for me a little bit because mm. there are there, there is the odd moment of of CG and stuff that has aged a little bit. I think it gives it a charm and, may, and gives like places it in its time mm. as well, which I really like in the film. But uh, yeah, the uh, the the violence and the the whole stage, you know, that wasn't wasn't my favourite part of it, really. And, no. But I don't I don't think it it lost too much from that. I think it has enough that it doesn't have to be the be all and end all of them. Okay. Well, we're going to be talking about the ending very soon, which is exactly what we do here. We spoil the endings. Uh, but later on, uh, Rachel will be looking at some happy accidents and unplanned moments in films, and Andy's been seeking out some unexpected cameos by UK TV stars in movies. That's after this short break. Now, this is the slightly awkward bit of the show where we pass the hat around. Making a podcast isn't expensive, but there are some costs we need to cover. And to be honest, it would also be nice to have a few quid to keep us supplied with coffee and vegan biscuits. You can help the show by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we get a few pennies each time. So that's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Centurion by by Simon Scarrow, who we've met and is a real nice bloke. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook and uh, add another password to your many long list of passwords. So just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk, click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help fund producer Johnny's infamous Roman toga party orgies. I can't find that in, come on. <laughs> Now, back to the show. You don't like it? You can crawl back down that hole that you came from. Now, welcome back to Spoiler, where we are discussing Gladiator, Ridley Scott's Gladiator from 2000. Uh, now, we're going to be talking about the ending very soon. Uh, so if you've not seen it or you don't want to know what happens towards the ending, go away, watch it and then come back to us. Now, generally, in big-budget movies, every second of what you see on screen has been meticulously planned and scripted. But every now and then, an unexpected accident or ad-lib makes its way into the final cut. Rachel's been taking a look at some memorable off-script moments. One of the most chilling and terrifying moments in Gladiator comes when the evil Commodus, played disturbingly well by Joaquin Phoenix, roars in his sister's face. Am I not merciful?! 
The audience jumps and trembles, as does Connie Nielsen, the recipient of the vocal blast. And her fear, her shaking, is real. The actress was not expecting the line or the delivery. It was completely ad-libbed by Joaquin, and it made the scene completely. This is not the only example of performers and directors going off-script or using tricks and pranks to create a truly classic moment. In Pretty Woman, Richard Gere famously snapped the lid of a jewellery box onto the fingers of a shocked Julia Roberts. Something's missing. Well, nothing else is going to fit into this dress, I'll tell you that. Maybe something in this box. Her resulting laugh, which was entirely genuine, as the moment had not been scripted, was considered so enchanting it was left in. Oh! (laughs) The obvious chemistry between the two stars was only further enhanced by this court moment and a beautiful film partnership was born. I'm standing here. You make a move. You make a move. In a far less fluffy movie, Robert De Niro created a very memorable scene when his character from Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle, stood in front of the mirror and began talking to himself. You talking to me? The original script had simply said, Travis talks to himself in the mirror. De Niro's off-the-cuff interpretation of this vague instruction has become one of the most famous quotes in movie history. Well, I'm the only one here. Robin Williams was famous for ad-libbing in films. His role as the genie in Disney's Aladdin was pretty much all improvised, as were the majority of his radio broadcasts in Good Morning Vietnam. However, the piece that stands out most for me is delivered in a far more quiet manner when his character in Good Will Hunting is talking to Will about his late wife. The story is less than flattering towards his wife and involves her rather noisy, flatulent habits. My wife used to fart when she was nervous. She had all sorts of wonderful little idiosyncrasies. <laughs> you know, she used to fart in her sleep. <laughs> One night it was so loud it woke the dog up. <laughs> the story was entirely improvised mid-scene and caused Matt Damon to laugh hysterically. You can even see the camera shake slightly as the cameraman tries to stifle laughter. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> I love scenes that are set up to create genuine emotions in the performers, and it works especially well for child actors. Georgie Henley, who played Lucy in the most recent adaptation of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, was taken to the famous lamppost on the Narnia set, blindfolded. That look of wonder you see in the film was entirely real. Sometimes the director's intentions are not so kind, though. The cast of Ridley Scott's original Alien film were told that an alien would come out of John Hurt's chest, but very little else. They were certainly not told about the amount of blood there would be, or the fact that real meat and entrails would be involved in creating the necessary gore. When the alien finally burst out of John Hurt, the shocked faces of the actors splattered heavily in blood were genuine. Veronica Cartwright was so affected by the scene she passed out. David Fincher used a similar trick while filming the sloth scene in Seven. The actors playing the SWAT team were not informed that the sloth victim was still alive, so when the character suddenly coughed and moved around, (coughs) their reaction was real and perfectly mirrored that of the shocked audience. Occasionally, real fear is induced because something happens that shouldn't. In Spielberg's Jurassic Park, the glass roof of the Ford Explorer in the first T-Rex attack was not meant to break. The children trapped underneath it were entirely unready for the roof to fall in, and their screams came quite naturally. Along the same lines as things happening when they shouldn't, one of my favourite happy accident stories comes from the set of The Usual Suspects. In the iconic line-up scene, the childish giggling between the characters was genuine and caused by a rather unfortunate but completely unavoidable physical affliction, Benicio Del Toro's relentless farting. (laughs) I want to finish up this piece with a story in defence of Daniel Radcliffe. His acting in at least the first few Harry Potter films was often unfairly derided. However, through ad-libbing, the then 12-year-old Daniel created a classic moment at the end of Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets, proving he had a full understanding of his character and the quick wit to prove it. In Jason Isaac's words... My favourite line is actually one of Daniel's because my first day's work, one of my first shots, was walking away from Dumbledore's desk and I said to Chris Columbus, oh, I'd really love an exit line. And he said, well, let's go again, we'll shoot something and just make something up. And we didn't tell Daniel, and uh, who was only, you know, waist high, and I turned round to him, unexpectedly to him, and I said, Let us hope that Mr Potter will always be around to save the day. And he looked up at me and he puffed his chest out and he said, Don't worry, I will be which is pretty impressive for a 12-year-old, and he's uh, he's stayed that impressive ever since. Though some classic cinematic moments are entirely accidental, there are many that are born from incredibly fast thinking and a deep connection to the character, 
and a story. That's when the magic happens and when cinema gold is forged. Right, so I think you picked up on some excellent points there. A lot of this was ad lib, wasn't it? You know, gen- generally as well. There were some uh, brilliant parts from or brilliant lines. Um, at my signal, unleash hell. Oh, you're not entertained. These sort of lines from uh, from Russell Crowe. Uh, so maybe we underestimated him earlier. Maybe he is the greatest actor in the Ooh. world. <laughs> <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> I'm going to say no, it. No. You can say it, but you don't necessarily need to mean it. <laughs> I, I, I heard him on a, a, another film uh, podcast show, which, uh, well, well, let's, let's name it, Wittertainment, he's on there. And uh, I remember, I can't remember what film it was for, but uh, Mark Kermode came on and they were doing a phone interview with Simon Mayo. And uh, Russell Crowe's the other end of the phone going, uh, right, did you used to write for the enemy? Did you oh, used to write yeah. for the enemy? And he was going off on him because he, he thought he'd, he'd slagged him off for something. He was saying, he was saying no, that was that was someone else. And he got really quite aggro oh, down no. the phone. He was like, you know, I thought he was going to threaten him or something. Well, was maybe you really need to st- shut up then. <laughs> He's got a habit of doing that though, hasn't he? There was that... Uh, interview he did for, about, uh, for Robin Hood when uh, Robin Hood came out where someone asked him what kind of accent he was doing <laughs> and he, he stormed out, I think it was, they suggested he was doing Irish was it? Or mm-hmm. it? And, he, and he stormed out of the interview Well Nottingham is legendarily difficult to do if you can get the word week right, you've got you've, you've got you've got nothing. I'm going there next week, and that that's what you've got it. I don't think any screen Robin Hood's ever ever tried to get the Nottingham twang down. Really, they? uh, they're just not trying hard enough. Um, right, so I think another thing we like to look at. Uh, are other actors that audition for roles and, and this kind of thing. So in the role of Joaquin Phoenix as uh, Commodus, is Jude Law. Could you see that? I could see that. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I don't too. think he would have been quite as good, but... I don't think he'd be quite so creepy. He wouldn't have been as over the top, but I think that's a bad thing. Mm. I don't think he could have carried... Or he might have been as over the top, but not carried it as well as Joaquin mm. Phoenix did. However, uh, as Lucilia, um, Jennifer Lopez, I'm not yes, biased. Yes, I, no. I read that and thought, oh my goodness me. I don't think any... <laughs> Film is improved by inserting Jennifer <laughs> Oh, we're getting very vindictive. Aren't yeah, we, we? are. Aren't we? <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, how about the, the Connie Nielsen? I think play, she plays a good part, but it's not. There's not much of a role here for for her to get no. her teeth into, is there? There's not. You know, you think she she does her best mm. at giving this uh, confident uh, sort of you know the um, uh, wo- wo- woman, obviously woman, but mm. uh, you want more of her. You want you know you want you want it to be perhaps like. Uh, uh, Lena Hadley at Game of, Game of Thrones, perhaps a bit, you know, just you know. Now, now she's existed. I think that's the one, the one where everyone should be looking for these, you know, to 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 try and take more of a powerful role. But uh, I don't know. They, perhaps, perhaps this is where movies have come on. Do you think? You know, roles for women. When you look back at that. They, they, they must be getting better. I'm going to go to Andy for this, Rachel. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Just be well, you know. We don't want to be this program that says, "Right, you, you're a woman. Talk about women in it." You, I know you've got an. I know you've got you've got an idea on it. But Andy, um, I think I think roles for women are getting a little better, but it, it depends on the sort of film. And this is very much the sort of film where the women are going to be more marginalised. I think. But yeah, it, it, it was. It, she, it wasn't just that she was marginalised. It was that it wasn't a very good role at all. And the one thing that really didn't work for me was the kiss between her and Russell Crowe. I thought that was completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, his his wife and child have, have just been killed recently. He's he's all he's all about revenge for that. And she's she's in love with him. But he to maintain that kind of dignity and that. That shouldn't be the kiss. And the minute that happened, my wife went even said no as it started <laughs> to happen. She, she almost jumped up because it, it just doesn't fit at all. Mm-hmm. And then, like when he dies at the end, and he, he goes into the afterlife, and you see his his wife there. I was always, almost expecting her to be there with curlers, like in a rolling pin. <laughs> so about that kiss, then. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. Apparently, they were going to have even more of a sexual relationship between mm. the two and they did fight that down but I totally agree with you they didn't need that at all but I think that was just pure I don't know just audience pandering yeah. it's like oh because there's a woman and a man and they're attractive let's have them kiss each other and it's like oh for goodness sake that's not what this film's about it just seems so lazy yeah yeah, we're better so. than that I mean I think ultimately we're working um, to uh, enjoying this film a lot uh, picking holes in it which all comes up with exactly what Andy said at the beginning Good, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, th- I think something that happens quite a bit in this is is the cast uh, of maybe the Senate and the uh, the English actors that are in there, and you spend your time going, 
Oh, what was he in? Oh, <laughs> what? No, oh, he was in that thing. I mean, that's obviously, you know, the voice of Iggle Piggle now, but... Uh, it, <laughs> oh, yeah! It's uh, 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 so a work that's of genius, true. isn't it? I mean, this is more and more my campaign to get us to do children's TV. <laughs> really just turn this into a children's TV review. Go for it. Um, <laughs> um, and then, yeah, but I just think, oh, and then I, I looked I looked through the uh, the list of actors, and I thought, I don't recognise any of those names, but I know, that, oh, he was in that thing. Oh, his voice, always. Oh, he got a good voice, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, Derek Jacobi, sure. Yeah, you know Derek Jacobi's name, sure. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah there you are. Eagle Piggle. <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps one of the more unexpected moments in Gladiator is the appearance of UK comedian Omid Jalili. It's always good to see British talent making it in Hollywood, but for an audience more used to seeing them on the small screen, these appearances can be more than a little jarring. Andy has been finding out more. In the decade that separated my first and second viewings of Ridley Scott's Gladiator, there were many things I'd forgotten about the film, but perhaps what surprised me most was the reawakening of a dim remembrance that Iranian-British comedian Omid Jalili is in. Jalili makes a brief appearance as a slave trader early in the film, and while his presence may be surprising to British audiences in particular, he proved himself a more than adequate choice for this small role. Proximo! My old friend! You sold me. Queer giraffes. I want my money back. Not a chance. A do special price for you. British TV stars have occasionally managed to make successful transitions to the big screen, with Lee Evans, Simon Pegg and Ricky Gervais all becoming unlikely leading men in feature films. But perhaps more fascinating than these transformations are those moments when the most unlikely names pop up in cameos or supporting roles. Seeing a face you associate with an ITV sitcom or an early 90s game show suddenly sharing the screen with red carpet frequenters from the A-list has a disturbingly dreamlike effect as two seemingly disparate worlds collide. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of the most important sci-fi films of all time, a visual feast of hypnotic existentialist imagery in which human actors play second fiddle to spectacle. With the sensory assault to which Kubrick subjects the viewer in this masterpiece, it's hardly surprising that very few people remember that in an early sequence in the film, Rigsby turns up. (laughs) The casting of Leonard Rossiter famous to British audiences for his hilarious turns in the classic sitcoms Rising Damp and The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, is more of a retrospective curiosity, since Rossiter had long been a respected theatre and film actor and had already appeared in highly regarded productions such as Billy Liar, This Sporting Life and The Whisperers. For those who grew up with his perfectly portrayed 70s sitcom characters, however, it's far harder to go back and accept him in the role of a Russian scientist, and it doesn't help that Rossiter plays this role in the same fidgety manner with which he would soon imbue lecherous landlord Rigsby. Dr. Schmieslove. Uh, whatever the reasons for your visit to Clavis, Dr. Floyd, the very best of luck to you. Like you. Rossiter has long been one of my comedy heroes, but I can't help but be momentarily wrenched out of 2001's world when he makes his appearance, a sequence which seems more surreal to me than the film's famous star child climax. David Schneider may not be the most famous name in comedy, but he certainly has one of the most instantly recognisable faces. His unusual but appealing features are probably most associated with the role of Tony Hayes, the fictional BBC head of programming who was unforgettably assaulted with a wheel of cheese by Steve Coogan's Alan Partridge. Smell my cheese, mother! With our younger viewers may also know him as Uncle Max from the CBBC series of the same name. For me, Schneider will always be most associated with The Friday Night Armistice, a satirical 90s comedy series which, along with Fist of Fun and Big Train, is one of my favourite largely forgotten comedies of that decade. Having been familiar with Schneider's unmistakable face since the mid-90s, I recognised him instantly when he unexpectedly appeared alongside Tom Cruise in Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible. No, don't, don't, it'll crash into us! Accelerate! Accelerate! In a brief, misjudged comedic sequence, Schneider plays a Eurotunnel train driver whose overplayed fainting the actor was pleased to note got the only laugh in the film, although he did admit that it wasn't exactly intended to be a hilarious movie. Unlike the aforementioned films, British director Brian W. Cook's Colour Me Kubrick was neither a cinematic landmark nor a box office sensation, 
But this retelling of a true story about a con man who spent years impersonating director Stanley Kubrick did manage to attract an A-list star in the shape of John Malkovich. Malkovich stars alongside a virtual who's who of British TV stars, including Richard E. Grant, Honor Blackman, James Dreyfus, Robert Powell and Rebecca Front. With such a wealth of small screen talent, you'd think Cullamy Kubrick would be a film exempt from the possibility of that moment of jaw-dropping incongruity that only bizarre casting can conjure. I mean, even Peter Salas is in it for God's sake. But no amount of semi-famous faces can prepare the viewer for the arrival of the character Lee Pratt, an ageing entertainer described as a low-rent Liberace with an Elvis gleam in his eye. Flamboyantly homosexual, Pratt's arrival in the film is marked by a slow, seductive descent of a staircase as he purrs a rendition of Lionel Rich's Hello to a room of party guests. So come on then, see if you can guess this one. Who do you think Cook cast in the role of a gay, wannabe Vegas singer? Have you thought of a name? Okay, hands up all those who said Jim Davidson. That's not many hands. Hello! Davidson, a controversial comedian who was axed from the 2007 reality show Hell's Kitchen for taunting fellow contestant Brian Dowling with homophobic epithets, would surely be the last name to spring to mind for this role, and yet his performance gained plaudits from several critics who found unexpected depth and dignity in his portrayal. I wanna tell you so much. I love you. I've saved perhaps the most bizarre example of incongruous casting for last. Roman Polanski is a director who has worked with some of the biggest names in movie history. Jack Nicholson, Mia Farrow, Adrian Brody, Keith Chegwin, Johnny Depp. Wait a minute. Go back one. Hey, hiya! It's me, Cheggers! Way! That's right. For his 1971 adaptation of Macbeth, Polanski actually cast the future multi-coloured swap shop and Saturday Superstore host Keith Chegwin in the role of Flayance. I'll go to the night, boy. The moon's down. The boisterous Chegwin might seem like a strange choice, but the tender age of 14 starred his future ahead of him, and a career in Shakespearean productions may well have seemed like a viable option. Ultimately, the closest he came to this was years later in the infamous Channel 5 nudist game show Naked Jungle, where he finally got to show the world his bottom. I'm hoping you'll let that joke slide, given that I did resist making any comments about Jim Davidson's big break in Hollywood. Chegwin continued acting for several years after this, appearing in the pilot of sitcom Open All Hours, as well as episodes of The Life of Birds, Zed Cars, and The Adventures of Black Beauty. But by the mid-70s, he drifted more towards presenting roles, forsaking the bard, and forever depriving the viewing public of the phenomenon that could have been Chegger's Plays Puck. So superb, Andy. Thanks very much for that. And it is one of those things where Omid, Omid appears every now and then, doesn't he? And it does. He go, oh, oh, I like him. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, he's good. But actually, I, I would, I would say that behind Ollie, and a little bit behind Ollie, he's probably the, the second best actor in it, wouldn't he? <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So as we do, we uh, we we work towards the ending and and and, and see what what happened at the ending. And we've, we've talked about it a little bit, um, but we satisfied with the ending, Rachel. Yes, I he don't died. Think it, well, I don't think it could have done anything else, really. Well, could it? I looked, I looked at it, and sorry, I know I've just asked you a question, and I'm giving you my own opinion. However, <laughs> however, I think this is a point where it didn't. I couldn't really see how he died. What was the wound that got him? Maybe I don't. I don't know. There was something behind the armor or something. Was that? Who was that? Was it? You don't get stabbed was, in the side that, and not do, die. Do you want to elaborate on that for radio? <laughs> it was that. <laughs> Rachel just before they even. I just mind being stabbed in the side. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that, but I didn't think that yeah, was going to... Yeah, that's what killed he wounded. Was it? Yeah. yeah. That would... He, this is actually a true thing. It was on the Internet Movie Database trivia. Well, it must well, be true. Now um, we know it's 100%. The, 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 there is a real Commodus and who was very popular at the start. And he did used to do gladiatorial fights, and um, but he did used to stab them before they went out and used to hide mm. it with armour. So they were weakened. So it was quite a quite a true thing that was done. I suppose I was looking for like a killer blow, I suppose. You know, it's, it's, there's the... You just you know, wore him it's down. The, it's the ground level in me, I, I suppose. You know, I mean, like, in previous episodes of this programme, I've described myself as an intelligent viewer and demanding intelligence, and I've just uh, gone and shot that down in flames. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I suppose I just wanted a big, bigger... <laughs> bigger that's what I wanted. You wanted a, blood, didn't you? You wanted somebody's <laughs> head off. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, that's exactly it. Andy, how did it make you feel at the end? Was it blessed relief? Um, it, it was. It was all right. I think it's, it's a decent end. And good. Yeah, yeah. I'm sticking with that. I think. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm about on the same level. Apart from that kiss, which I really hate. I'm about on the same level across this film. I like it, and I don't love it. I don't. Uh, I don't dislike it. I like it. It's good. <laughs> it's a two thumbs uh, up. You see, yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah. miming two. Thumbs up. <laughs> There's two <laughs> thumbs up from Andy. Yeah. And so, I, I wasn't keen on the floating thing. And and I know kind of why they were doing it. Oh, he's floating, blah, blah, blah. But he did the floating thing when he had his arm wound and he mm. had that floating across the sand. And then at the end when he died and he had the floating thing again. And I thought, me and my housemate discussed this and he said, oh, oh, it's because, it, you know, he died and it's his point of view. I said, it couldn't have been his point of view because it was him. Yeah. So whose point of view is mm. this? Because we're not looking at him floating because we're not like adult. Well, had he so, left his own body at that point and looking well, down on it? I don't know. I don't think so either because he didn't when he was had his wound and things I don't know it just seemed really weird and it just seemed a bit like why bother mm. you know you've already got the, the door and the hay and all of that I'm doing a lot of gesticulation I'm sorry yeah, that's fine <laughs> and, um, but yeah so the, the cornfields and then his wife and that seemed a bit odd with the colours and things and that was fine because that's his point of view he's dying yeah. but the floating thing you, you could have maybe not put that in for me I think that aged it a little bit I thought that looked a bit twee yeah be quite, it'd be quite interesting to find out what Ridley Scott thinks about it now, how he, how he looks back. And what about Ridley Scott? Right, this is a loose, indirect question, and it's not the best question I've ever thought of, <laughs> but sometimes you need those to make the other questions sound better, right? Right. Okay. What's your favourite Ridley Scott film? Ooh. <laughs> Alien. Yeah, it, it's, it's got to be Alien. Although I recently saw The Martian and really enjoyed that oh, as well. Oh, that was really good fun. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's a good cinematic mm. experience, he's, wasn't it? He's a strange director because he, he does hit, miss, hit, miss, hit, miss, and yet... He's so respected. Other directors do this thing where they're hitting and missing all the time and they sort of lose a bit of respect from people and, oh, what's it going to be this time? Mm-hmm. And he doesn't do that. If it's a Ridley Scott film, people go, oh, it's Ridley Scott, this is going to be good, mm-hmm. regardless of what he did before. That's because of your instincts there in Alien, I think. I wonder yeah. what, because of that, mm-hmm. everyone's, oh, right, OK, yeah. He'll yeah. come up trumps again. It's yeah. OK, just keep yeah. it going, keep him going. the other big one is uh, Blade Runner, isn't it? But mm-hmm. I've only seen that once and I really need to go back and see it again because oh, I've wonderful. forgotten it completely. Oh. So. so good. Never seen it. <gasps> right, okay, so... Series four. <laughs> there was a cancelled sequel. Did you hear about this? Nick Cave. Nick Cave? What? <laughs> no, Nick Cave. I Sorry, like a it. sequel or a parody? A sequel. <laughs> right, it was okay. a sequel that Nick Cave wrote as a time-travelling Maximus and that he was going to come back during World War II uh, and then go on to Vietnam, <laughs> the Vietnam War, uh, and then be a modern-day general at the Pentagon. Was this on the IMDb trivia list? <laughs> Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, but I've also seen, I I did see it somewhere else as well, Uh, but the studio, no, I did see the, yeah, I did see this somewhere else. (laughs) Wow. Oh, no, you're making me doubt the trivia list. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all true. Okay, we've come to the point now where I've worked on a scale, and again, it's making uh, making our producer (laughs) work for his... it's pie and peas. We're making <laughs> pie and peas. Um, now, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to do like Caesar in there. We're going to do. You stop looking at my script, Rachel. This is supposed to be a surprise, and Rachel's looking at my script. I don't like surprises. I need, uh, next, next time we come in, I'm going to have like I'm going to bring it either in my laptop or I have a little lectern kind of thing over this side of the studio, so Just you can stop reading my script. Eye shield things, so anyway. I can't see. <laughs> anyway, so you're, you two, uh, uh, well, no, me and me as well, we're going to do a thumbs up or thumbs down. We're going to hold hold the thumb in the in the mid air across like Caesar did, and you're either going to stick it up, and then there's going to be a massive crowd noise, or down. And um, do you know what? I've no idea what that's going to be, and that's going to be the inspiration behind Johnny. It's going to surprise me when we listen back to it because uh, there's nothing we like better than on, uh, on listening back to ourselves on the radio is there <laughs> right so um, okay Rachel uh, thumb in the air uh, there's another visual thing but I'm going to describe what's happening now Rachel <laughs> has her thumb facing sideways currently and she's put it <laughs> okay Andy his thumb is <laughs> and so you know, you see, I think what you because it was good, you should have just like not done anything. <laughs> You'd still be here tomorrow, um, right now. Uh, just for the sake of it, again, just for the sake of it, I, I'm not going to tell you what I really think, but I just want to make our producer <laughs> find a different sound effect, so he's going to go. <laughs> Uh, but there we go. Yeah, are you are you unanimous? And I think do you know what it is a pleasant surprise. I think it's it, if I can paraphrase the whole program and not in just one word of Andy's being good. Uh, I, I do think we, we 
it, it demonstrates how far we've come, doesn't it, in, mm. in the last 16 years? <laughs> but actually, it's kind of a joy and a bit of a yeah. kickback to go back on, isn't it? But uh, I don't know. Here, here we go. Here's a good last word. Are you going to recommend this to your friend? Say, like, you know, we did this for spoiler. Go back and watch it. Are you going to say that? Yeah, yeah, I think I would. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, yeah worth, a re- worth a rewatch is what I'd say. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you both very much for uh, for joining us. Thank you to Johnny, our producer, and uh, we'll leave you as always with a genial Andy Goulding. My favourite thing to do when I were younger, so to speak, was sit down with my family at the tail end of the week. My dad would make the sarnies with a side of cold potatoes. We'd gather around the telly and we'd all watch Gladiators. We had to sit through Baywatch first, which I could see no fun in. Still too young to appreciate the point of all that running. But when the tide went out, then so began the fun and games, for warriors in lycra with their silly macho names. In terms of average age, there was a noticeable gulf between the younger fighters and the villain known as Wolf. And yet he was the best, a raging ball of passion who terrified the trousers off of poor John Fashionu. While others found him silly, I considered him inspiring, still wielding giant cotton buds with no thoughts of retiring. When the Gladiators franchise ran completely out of steam, he should have had a second life upon the silver screen. He could have had a bit part in the movie Gladiator, perhaps off in the distance running up the Travelator. But Ridley Scott was clearly not a big fan of the show. Instead of Wolf or Phoenix, the director went with Crow. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher, with additional music from the Gladiator original soundtrack. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing the links to our show and writing a nice review on iTunes. Are you a Next time on Spoiler, we're taking a look at Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 psychological thriller, Vertigo. You shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been that sentimental. If you'd like to contact us, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk, find us on Twitter or Facebook, or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmoe production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. The Senate has prepared a series of protocols to begin addressing the many problems in the city, beginning with basic sanitation. Sanitation.